This is HPR episode 2225 entitled Fostum 2017K Level 2 Stands 10 to 19 and is part of the series Interviews. It is hosted by Ken Fallen and is about 59 minutes long and carries an explicit flag. The summary is Ken interviews the projects in the K building level 2 at Stands 10 to 19. This episode of HPR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hi everybody, I'm at the Open Smart Grid platform and I'm talking to... Sonny Yonsa. Hi, how are you doing? I'm fine, how are you? You're a new project here to uh, FOSTEM this year. Can you tell us, give me an idea of what Open Smart Grid um, is and what you're trying to do with it? Uh, Open Smart Grid is uh, essentially an IoT gateway yep. to control a lot of devices. And we use it for our um, own operation within Allianzer, a, a, a Dutch uh, grid utility company. So you're the people who, who maintain the wires and the pylons and, and bring power into our homes? Yeah. Okay, yeah. The power distribution part. So, yeah. so we don't do production, we do power distribution. Yeah. And to do that, we need a lot of um, control, a lot of devices uh, like grid automation, uh, smart meters, but also public lighting for municipalities. Yeah. And that's where the project started. Uh, municipalities, municipalities wanted to have more control over their uh, uh, streetlights, uh, switching schedules. Yeah. So uh, we're going to replace ripple control technology with uh, the open smart grid platform and a lot of devices in the field, which give municipalities more uh, control over their own switching scheme. What was the ripple control? Uh, ripple control is basically a techno- technology where uh, pulses sense over the grid, uh, over the 50 hertz grid, and then a lot of devices in the grid pick up that signal and then they know I have to switch or I have to set a different tariff, etc. Oh, okay. So it's pretty old school technology and it's pretty one way and not so sophisticated. So everything is just listening to the power grid fluctuations and then do something based on that. Yeah. So what's the difference between that and the open smart grid platform? How does, how does presumably it's two-way communication then? Yeah, with the open smart grid platform, uh, we're going to uh, build in modems into the, the devices yeah. and that modem and that device is connected to the open smart grid platform. And the open smart grid platform acts as a gateway uh, between the applications and all those devices. So, how does it physically do the communication back? Also over the grid? Uh, uh, no, it is a TCP/IP over a separate telecom network. Okay. Okay. And yeah. so now, but that's g- going to give you an overhead, like every street light's going to need to have a some sort of communication device. Well, the idea is to switch a whole bunch of street lights at once. So, so you're you're not going down to street light level. You're going to street level for example yeah that's what that's what we're offering municipalities uh nowadays as well but now it's built on the um ripple control technology okay and so what's the benefit for you you're a like power distribution what's the benefit for you in doing this um well we we want to make it open source so otherwise others can can join the uh development Because uh, I think there are a lot of organizations who have to manage a lot of devices. Yeah. And I think the open smart grid platform can help with them. And by making it open source, we also try to stimulate innovation and work together with, uh, with others. Are you coming up with uh, your own technology or are you using any of the standards and, and that you've had before? Uh, yeah, in, uh, in the protocol terms, we use the, the standards used in our smart grid field so most of them are IEC uh, standards yeah. uh, but we, we try to use uh, other standards as well in, in the more technology uh, sphere so it's not an invented here thing if there's a standard already available you'll incorporate that yeah yeah because then we, it gives us more market choice to, to select more we have more choice in selecting devices yeah okay well as we were talking earlier I was bringing up the the fact that 
everybody in Europe is going to have to have a smart meter put into to their homes. I wonder, could you give me a, a what's the idea behind the reasoning of that, and will they also be controlled by Open Smart Grid? Um, yeah, well, we last year we added uh, the smart metering domain. So if people listening who have millions of smart meters, they can use this Open Smart Grid platform to control them all. Okay. Um, so is there anything else that you want to uh, talk to me about or anything? How, how can, what are you hoping to achieve here by coming to FOSDEM? Um, yeah, we hope, we hope to get more um, spread the world spread the word about the open smart grid platform yeah. and especially organizations with a lot of devices who have struggling with managing them all and that kind of stuff yeah they they i hope that they join the open smart grid platform uh, development this would be also useful for somebody who uh, you know a large factory or things like that or that if you buy components that are open smart grid compatible that you could also use that in a smaller scale rather than like nationwide like you have guessing uh yeah, yeah you could use it for a smaller but skill but uh, that's maybe it's a little bit overkill because yeah. we're so like so i said security is uh, really a thing since we're a utility yeah. so we um you lock up almost everything so it, it takes you quite a quite some time to to develop stuff and <coughs> and make it work yeah. so for a smaller skill like factories it's i think it's could be some overkill yeah. but if you're talking about a large skill um, then, it, then it could be very interesting to make that investment. Okay. Um, when I was doing the research for uh, for this here, I was a bit surprised to see that a big, what I would call a traditional Dutch company, would be involved in open source. Can you tell me how did that happen? How, you know, who who was able to influence the the organization? Was it a hard sell? Was it an easy sell? Was it maybe you can't say too much about it? But no, no, it it was me. It was you. <laughs> I was already already a big fan uh, of open source before I joined uh, um, uh, Aliander. Yeah. So then at a certain point I thought, well, let's uh, start to do some um, evangelism. Yeah. <laughs> so I gave presentations to a lot of guys and then I came across the open smart grid platform. So I said to the colleagues, hey, uh, I can find it on GitHub. So how open is open? So and then they said to me, "Oh, uh, Sander, you need to help us. Yeah. What is open source? Yeah, How does it work?" The, yeah, and then uh, uh, yeah, we went to uh, to to Oscom, yeah. and then they uh, they thought, "Oh, well, this this is it. Open source is the way to go." Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so so yeah, I, I'm pushing. I because we're also a utility company owned by the the public because yeah. uh, by the by the government. So I think this is also a way to give back to the to the societies to our investment. Yeah. But it takes a lot of talking, and not every utility is very into open source right now, but it's getting there. But if you like to get more in contact with us, uh, feel free to email us or fire a GitHub issue. <laughs> cool. Thank you very much. Thanks for taking okay. the time. Hello, everybody. I'm here at the Pearl booth meeting up with... Mark Keating. Wendy van Dijk. Yeah. Curtis Poe. This is like deja vu. It's just like... Over a year, I was walking past the booth and we were talking to all of you guys. So what has happened in the last year in the Pearl community? Curtis has his amazing game out. Pearl 6 gets better and better. What, what else can do? We have Camellia Butterfly Stuff Toys. It's completely new and they're awesome. For us, it's just mostly been putting our head down and uh, picking up contracts, doing more Pearl development for folks, and it's just amazing some of the stuff we're doing. Having a blast with it. And how is uh, migration to Pearl 6? Do you, do you think that's affecting Pearl 5 at all? 
Well, just to clarify, there's, it's not a migration. A lot of people think because 6 is in the name that it's a version number. And Perl 5 and Perl 6 are actually separate languages, the way C-sharp and Java are separate languages, even though they're very related. I think Perl 6 has actually been doing a good job of bringing attention back to Perl in general, and it's been very positive. Everyone who's been looking at Perl 6 when I give talks about it, they're really excited. I mean, they love the sorts of things which are in there. And unlike a lot of other languages... Uh, where there's this one thing that you want, everyone seems to have something different in Perl 6 that they really want. And it's been a lot of fun, and it's really been helping to bring some of the excitement back. It's, I love it. Excellent stuff. So what can I look forward to this year? What's the Lots of Perl 6 books. This is the year of the Perl 6 books. We already have one in, in print, yeah. and uh, there's another one in, in print coming um, next month. And... Uh, both of them, uh, one of them at O'Reilly, one of them uh, is uh, self-published. There will be at least three more at O'Reilly, and uh, one other publisher will also do uh, at least one book. So, this year we'll see six different Perl 6 books. It's, it's appropriate, six, six, nice. And so, are you gonna, is there going to be any talks here at FOSTEM being given? There's a whole room tomorrow of Pearl Talks, so it's back-to-back talks all day in the Pearl Dev room. On, on, on Sunday, we will have uh, 13 talks in a row. Wow. Yeah. Okay. All those will be available on the FOSDEM website, which you're going to have to search for yourself because you can't possibly put links to every different project. But yes, you can. Relationship. <laughs> And our company, we're looking at uh, releasing an MMORPG, uh, a universe actually, written in Perl, Perl 5 specifically. And we've been having a lot of fun. We'll be giving a talk about that uh, tomorrow, in fact, at the request of the organizers. I have just been giving a flyer about that, which is, looks amazingly cool. Are all these graphics done within Perl 6? Uh, no, the game itself is written in Perl 5. Yeah. Uh, most of the graphics, I believe, are... Blender, I think. Well, that depends. That's the person who's doing the uh, 3D art. Our graphic designer, I don't, actually don't know what tools she's using. Well, congratulations and uh, have a good show this year. Thank you. You too. Hi, I'm at the Koala booth and I'm talking to... Lasse Schumann. And I'm also talking to... Sebastian Latach. Okay, guys, remind everybody again what Koala.io is. So Koala is a tool for linting and fixing code in all programming languages. That means I can take code in any programming language, more or less, and I can apply Koala to it, and I get information about what could be potentially wrong with my source code without having, having to worry about 5,000 different tools for all those languages for different aspects of my source code. And how are you going to maintain that for all the different languages as they go on? So uh, the code analysis from Koala at the moment uh, mainly consists out of uh, wrappers around existing tools. So one of the main tasks that Koala does is it organizes a fleet of, I think, over 100 tools uh, to work for you without you having to worry about all of them. And secondly, uh, Koala has native algorithms, and we design them to work on any programming language. So you would essentially provide a small definition for a programming language, and that algorithm would, with that information, work on that language. Because for some, especially the simpler things, there is absolutely no need to rewrite that analysis for every language again and again, especially spacing. Like That's totally easy. Is this something that can be integrated into a continuous workflow or an agile programming development workflow? And I think that's what you want to talk about. Yes, that is. Um, yeah, um, that's how we started our future project. It's called GitMate. So with GitMate, our general idea is to improve the Git workflow, simplify the Git workflow of developers. And uh, the idea originated from Koala, like the first approach was to take Koala and integrate it seamlessly into a Git workflow, like having the comments right where a human, commenter, a human reviewer would comment as well. And from there on, we started thinking about other stuff, how you can improve the Git workflow as well, like, for example, with general repository management, um, or also with uh, finding bugs in an early stage. So we're currently working on that. 
and we also use Fostem to uh, check, uh, um, communicate with other other developers of Fostem, uh, trying to find out how to, what they like most and how we can help them simplify their Git workflow. So as you check into Git, it would kick off Koala, and then you get a report back on yeah. quality of your code. As soon as soon as you do the pull request, it will check in Koala, yeah. but it wouldn't be labeled as Koala, but as Gitmator, yeah. but it will use the Koala engine uh, to do the analysis. Okay, and completely transparent of what programming language? Yeah, the same as Koala, yeah. Oh, excellent. excellent. And you're, are there going to be any talks here at FOSTEM this year, or um, are you going to be stuck in the booth? Uh, we're going to be stuck in the booth. Uh, possibly there will be a talk we don't know of. There, there have been in the past. Yeah. Um, but you're just booth minions. Uh, yeah. 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 <laughs> very good. Thank you. I'll let you go back to it. Thank you very much for taking the time. Cool. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Hi, I'm at the Linux from Scratch book and, uh, booth and I'm talking to... Uh, Julien Lepiler. Hi, and can you tell us what Linux from Scratch is? Uh, Linux from Scratch is a book to um, to learn how to build a Linux system from um, nothing. So you have the actual source code, you build the source code. That's how it is. Yes, you download uh, the source code of all the programs you need and you compile everything. And once you finish all the book, you have a running Linux system. You're up to the bash command, basically. Yes. Uh, actually, there are two books. The first book is uh, only to build the first uh, Linux system that is uh, very minimal. The, um, um, the most advanced program you will have is VIME. And then there's a second book called Beyond Linux from Scratch that will teach you everything there is to know to have a, uh, a real Linux system with... Uh, um, Xorg and any program you will need. So, I'm you're physically selling books here on the booth, and they're not that thick. Um, is it is it possible? Would you recommend people physically type in from the book or copy and paste in from a terminal? Um, it's still better to copy paste because you some comments are very long and you can make uh, you can easily make mistakes that don't show up immediately. So sometimes if you make a mistake at the beginning, you only uh, find them at the end of the book. So you should still uh, copy paste the command from uh, the internet. Okay. So what's new in the book this year? Um, so every version, there are uh, new versions of uh, programs. Um, um. I see here systemd is in, so you will be compiling systemd, I guess, this time. Yes, uh, but it was still the time, uh, it was uh, the case last year too. Okay, yeah. So it's not really new. Um, so um, there, there's a systemd and a sysv init version. Okay. Uh, since last year, they uh, they have merged uh, both in the same uh, repository for um, uh, for mainte for uh, better maintenance. Yep. Uh, but apart from that, there's uh, nothing really new. Uh, okay, you're just keeping up with the latest and greatest. Yes, uh, all it. All the software is always up to date. And uh, now that's an interesting point because you two are now running two laptops with Linux from scratch, I presume. Uh, I don't oh. think so. <laughs> oh, the shame! The shame! <laughs> they are running, because this is radio, nobody will be able to tell. Yes, they're running two laptops with Linux from scratch. How do you keep up to date with your um, Linux from scratch version or is that not the intention? Um, so there's nothing really that uh, helps you um, having um, usually when you uh, build your Linux from scratch system it's a one shot process and you can't really update anything uh, especially the base system is very hard to update uh, but there are some tips uh, to build um, um, pack, uh, package managers or uh, to have your own package manager so you can actually you can still update uh, your your uh, packages 
Okay, very good. Why did you get involved in the project? Um, so first I wanted to learn more about uh, how Linux is done and um, I wanted to uh, to build my own system. I wanted to to have a system that is uh, really uh, that is exactly what I wanted uh, but it it takes a lot of time and it was very uh, very enjoyable to to have um, uh, to have my own system that uh, reacts exactly as I wanted it to uh, but now I don't have that much time so so I don't have a, an elephant system anymore oh dear it's a, to me, it's a bit like uh, traveling around the world. It's something you want to do once. It takes a lot of time, but you're glad you've done it. Yes, uh, I've I've been actually I've been updating my uh, LFS system for uh, two years, so it's doable. But uh, at some point, you you have to you have to accept that you won't have uh, all that time. <laughs> Uh, it, it takes a lot of time and you will want to do something else at some point. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much for taking the time and good luck with the rest of the show. Thank you. Hi, I'm at the Google booth and I'm talking to... Talking to Joshua Simmons with the Google Open Source Programs Office. So you have two, uh, two sides of the table here. Can you tell me what they're about? Absolutely. So we have two sides of the table. One is Google Summer of Code. The other is Google Coden. Google Summer of Code is our program to get university students involved with uh, open source software. Google Coden is targeted at uh, students aged 13 to 17. So Google Summer of Code works uh, this way. There are about 178 projects that participated last year. And some of those projects are like the Python Software Foundation, who are an umbrella for lots of, lots of other projects. What they do is they list project ideas, uh, and students then apply to work on those project ideas. The students who get accepted to the program then spend three months uh, under the, uh, with the help of a, of a mentor, and they work on those projects, and uh, we pay them a stipend so that they can focus on that work rather than having to take a summer job. Uh, Google Coding is a little different because it's for a younger age. Um, it's much smaller. We had about 17 organizations who participated this last year. And it's a contest, so there's no money, but we do give students uh, swag and the ones who are picked at the end of the contest, uh, two students per project, are chosen as grand prize winners and we give them a trip to San Francisco and Mountain View. Exactly, all expenses paid and and we show them a good time and they get to meet uh, Google engineers and and learn more about it. Basically promoting software. So how did you get involved in in this project? Did you... Volunteer for it, or uh... Uh, so I I came in uh, through the side door. Uh, I'm a, I'm a web developer myself, and I worked as a community manager in a in a past life. Uh, so I joined the open source programs office in the uh, last year, and so I help uh, as part of the five person outreach team uh, running Google Code and Google Summer of Code. And uh, my my task in particular is to run the Google Open Source blog. Okay, so that's you. That's me. Yes. Nice. Yes. Nice to meet you. Yeah, pleasure. So. Um, why, why come to FOSTEM? FOSTEM is the, I believe it's the largest FOSS event that we attend every year. Um, and it's, it's the fact that it's a, a free to the public event means that we get to talk to a lot more students than we might find at other events. Um, a lot of open source events are, uh, are more expensive, frankly. And so we find the people who we really need to talk to, not just the students, but also a lot of project maintainers are here. And it's really critical for us to talk to both of those groups because we want the project maintainers to apply to be a part of the programs. We want the students to apply to work for those projects. So, any new in, so when does this start happening? When do we need to apply if I was a project or if I'm a student? So we just concluded Google Coden. Uh, Google Coden ended uh, January 16th, I believe. We announced our grand prize winners uh, a week ago. So Google Coden will start again in about November of next year, usually after uh, the American Thanksgiving holiday, about that time. Uh, Google Summer of Code is ramping up right now. So applications for organizations and projects that want to apply are open till Thursday, February 9th. So anyone who's interested should look at that and apply now. Uh, 
students should look to apply. Uh, well, they should they should start watching now because we're going to be announcing the uh, organizations and projects that will be a part of that um, in the coming weeks. And I don't have the specific dates available to me in the moment, but uh, that generally runs from uh, students begin usually applying around April, and then it runs through uh, May, June, July, and August. Do you have anything equivalent for the Southern Hemisphere? We don't. We don't. We're a, we're a small team, and uh, the challenge that we have is that the organizations that apply to this, you know, they they need to have a, a point of contact to run their pro the side the program from their side, and they also need mentors for each of the students, two mentors per student. So we try not to burn them out because it's a it's a it's a it's a bit of a commitment for them. So. In an ideal world, we would run it, you know, a summer and winter of code, so that both hemispheres could could uh, participate equally. Um, but that's that's just not where we're at right now. Then it's a winter of code, I guess. Okay, thank you very much for. Uh, did I miss anything? Or okay, um, do you happen to know the some background about the winners, especially the Google, um, the two winners, the projects that won? Uh, so I don't have that in front of me, but I know that they came from a number of different countries around the world, and that's one of the things that's really exciting about the, both of these programs is they're they're entirely global. So, you know, some of these often when we bring them to the states, it's it's often their first time in the U.S. Um, and sometimes it's their first time in a big city, so they get to see San Francisco, and you get to see the stars in their eyes. Awesome! Well done. Thank you very much. Um, links to all this will be in the show notes, and uh, enjoy the rest of the show. Hi, I'm at the Ultimator booth, and I'm talking to... Uh, my name is Rodney Becker. Hi, and can you tell me what Ultimaker is? Uh, Ultimaker is a 3D printing uh, manufacturer uh, based in Gelder-Mals in the Netherlands. Uh, we're uh, originally an open-source company uh, focusing on uh, building an accessible uh, 3D printer yeah. uh, made for the, for the market and uh, for, for applied use. And when you say open-source, how much is open-source? Um, we started off as an open source company uh, because of the fact that the the, the, the founders um, they didn't have really the intention to, to start up a company, so they uh, they made it open source to make it accessible for a large uh, community. Yeah, and uh, that's the whole reason that we made it open source and also to get some feedback from uh, from uh, from the outside world, as it may. So I can go to your website. I can download the technical drones. Yeah, the technical drones. Everything. Um, technical and software-wise, you can find on uh, online. So, where's the business model? Uh, the business model is based in the, the the whole package because we make software. Uh, we have a, a, a slicer called Cura. We came up with uh, with Cura, and uh, the slicer in combine in combination with the printer, it um, it provides the whole um, let's say the whole uh, experience of uh, the ultimate uh, 3D printing experience, as it may. And a slicer is, they explain to people what a slicer is. A slicer is uh, a program that uh, generates G-code that makes it understandable for the printer. So you have a, a design made in AutoCAD or SolidWorks or something like that. Um, and you can transform that uh, or to load that into Cura, our slicer. And it makes it understandable for the printer in what layers, uh, the layer thickness, the speed and the type of material you would like to print. Okay, can you basically describe what sort of products you have available? Uh, we have a, a wide variety of, uh, of different printers. Uh, so Cura, but it's yeah free software. Um, and we provide every uh, service on every service level that you might need to, to get uh, the best result you need. So on the on your thing here, you say professional 3D printing. So I'm guessing you're not aiming at the $150. Uh, Chinese knockoff pre market. Yeah, well, with all due respect uh, to the to the Chinese market, uh, we make a printer that is uh, can be used professionally, and and our slogan is professional 3D printing make accessible. So it says it all. Um, the knockoff versions of uh, of 3D printers and also also the knockoff Ultimakers, uh, they don't they don't provide the the much needed uh, quality that you might need within your 3D printing process. Do you also provide then a third-party support and maintenance engineers to go around to factories or hospitals that will be using this technology? Uh, we have a department uh, focusing on that, so the, the usability of, the, of 3D printing in general, firstly, 
but secondly also looking at, uh, at partnerships to, to provide the necessary um, uh, input for, for, for instance, the, the automotive or the aerospace uh, uh, sector um, and really uh, shifting uh, away from more the um, around-the-house use, as it may, yeah. towards a more industrializing uh, process. It's becoming a lot more... Um a lot more accepted in industry now to, yeah. to have 3D printing process as yes. part of your... Can you take me through some of the stuff that's on your table that you've managed yeah. to print off? Um, the, you mean the prints itself yeah. or...? What we're looking at. And some of the stuff you printed. Okay, yeah, well, we have some, uh, some examples uh, of uh, the, the, the things you can print uh, with the printer. Uh, but also uh, our newest printer, that's the Ultimaker 3... It has the possibility to have uh, two accesses for different materials, so uh, dual dual access and um, uh, software wise and technical wise is a much improved printer um, in, in comparison with, uh, with the old ones um, but also uh, the old ones we made some upgrades for that to make it more up to standard in the use that you might need as, yeah. a, as either a, a home printer or an industrial printer they seem quite fast it is, but it's not. Uh, we're still looking into to getting things uh, done faster. But uh, we experience that uh, our customers uh, find that quality is the is the main uh, dri- drive uh, for uh, for to to buy a, a printer and to buy an Ultimaker. So that's why we uh, always focus on on quality. Yeah. So getting the print you you're looking for in order to make it uh, faster. Do you also work with uh, businesses that are new to 3D printing in order to help them? Uh, do you provide courses and stuff like that to help them get up to speed with how to use it in, in their environment? Well, the, the fun thing is that we um, get user cases from the industry itself. So we as a company sometimes get surprised by a company who already uses 3D printing in their uh, production process. Um, and we always enjoy hearing those kind of stories because it, for us, is motivating yeah. to get uh, to, to to stay innovative and to stay uh, to stay uh, to make a process that is and to deliver a product that is um, up to standard and what are the, what is the public is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, what what's the new stuff that's coming up this year? Well, we of course we are looking for uh, for a printer who is uh, an upgrade from the from the, the tree. Uh, we just released the tree. Um, and still looking into to ways to get uh, a better fit uh, towards the industry uh, branch. So um, maybe looking into uh, to more access for, uh, for, uh, for, 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 the, for the materials, but also thinking about uh, improving uh, the spaces uh, within the printer or um, to make it more, more like an industrial uh, setup. Yeah, very good. Okay, well, uh, was there anything I missed? Um, that we are still uh, trying to uh, to provide the necessary quality products for uh, for the people. That's 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 the whole meaning and uh, and reason that we do this. It's, it's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I was just saying it's the uh, company I most want to work for. So okay, <laughs> this is no secret. Well, you have my business card, so uh, <laughs> there you go. Yes. Um, okay, so thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you. Hi, I'm at the Sofa booth and I'm talking to... My name is uh, Hugo Talbot. And uh, can you tell me what Sofa is and what, what, what you do? Yes, Sofa is, uh, is actually uh, a library, library focusing on uh, physics simulation. And uh, we use for... Uh, it, it's existing for about 10 years. Yeah. And we are especially using physics simulation for medical application. And when you say physics, you're not talking in the... In the real world, you're talking about computer animation. Yeah, so we are talking about, uh, when I say physics, it's more about, you know, how does the human body behaves, what are the physical phenomenon taking uh, taking place there, and for example, that's how does an organ deforms, uh, how does, you know, uh, the temperature in the human body evolve, that kind of, that, that kind of physics that we are simulating. Okay, and um, why are you here? So I'm here because yeah I mean we discovered FOSDEM uh, I discovered FOSDEM uh, the last uh, the last year I would say yeah. something like that and uh, SOFA is open source and uh, we thought okay uh, we are we are open source we need to be in the open source places and that's actually a quite amazing place for you know meeting people there is a huge interest of people just with a huge curiosity so 
that's a, a very good uh, discovery and a very good meeting for us. Um. So it's a library, so uh, you're writing an application for something, then you can call this. What's it written in and what do I need to get it running? So, yeah, uh, anyone can actually uh, start uh, writing his own application. Uh, so far, it's, uh, the open source code is uh, a really a core that allows you then to do anything you want. If you want to start your own application, you will maybe develop your own plugin, your own module. You can set the license you want to, to, to this, uh, to this uh, code. The, to, it can be pro proprietary or open. And the idea is, what do you need to do? Either you can code a little bit of C++ in it and create new models, new physical law and so on. Or you can also di directly use what is already existing, for example, by using XML or Python scripts and describe your simulation and run it uh, straight away. So can you describe on this a typical use case that might be on the screen here? Yeah, uh, so uh, a, a typical example can be, so here we have uh, uh, the simulation of, uh, you know, the temperature evolution in the human body. That's here for curing some kind of tumors. There is tumors in, a, in an organ yeah. and we want to cure it. But to, to know how, how exactly to do that, we, we are taking the patient data. Yeah. We are analyzing the data yeah. and then we are running different kind of simulations to know what would be the best strategy to treat this specific patient. So we can, for example, with simulation, design new tools to help you know, the surgeon to make the right choice for the right patient for the surgery. So that's the kind of example that you can do with simulation. Can you use this for training purposes? Yeah, exactly. So there is, that, that has been actually the, really the main and the first purpose of the simulation. It was for training, just like for, uh, you know, in aeronautics simulation, a lot of pilots are training virtually. So just like in medicine here, Medical, medical doctors, medical students could also train on virtual simulation. And that's one, uh, one of the, I would say, yeah, two or three main purposes of, of simulation uh, in the field. And how did you start? Uh, so far, it started actually a long time ago. It's uh, a project from uh, researchers uh, from several different research centers, mainly INRIA, which is a, a, a French national uh, research institute in uh, computer science. And yeah, it was the the original idea was to have a common base of code, you know, to share between researchers uh, with an open source uh, license. And yeah, yeah, that's uh, we, we can see sometimes some some yeah some organs, uh, some uh, live demo of. Uh, so re uh, here I'm seeing a, what yeah. looks like a video, and then over that there's like a computer mesh. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, actually uh, the video of uh, uh, intraoperative video. That's really uh, for a specific patient. Yeah. That's his liver. And on, on top of that, we are adding information that comes from the simulation, and we are doing actually augmented reality with that kind of uh, with that kind of tool. So we are ah. helping the surgeon during the operation. Okay. You mentioned training. We mentioned pl help to plan the operation. That's the third one, actually. That's guidance. You know, during the operation, yeah. guide the surgeon to, to to reach his goal. Yeah. In this uh, in this instance, they're taking a 2D image, and then uh, as it rotates around, you can see it like a the uh, I presume it's yeah. a growth or something yeah. that they're trying to remove in three dimensions. So yes. that really helps give yeah. you an idea of where it is. Exactly. Yeah. We are extracting information from this video, which is 2D. We are extracting as much information as we can so that we then give information to our 3D physical model, which is here a mechanical model. Yeah. And from this mechanical model, then we give back information, for example, where the tumor is located or where the blood vessels are located so that you know the surgeon can, during the operation, take the right decision. Absolutely awesome stuff. But presumably you wouldn't be limited to you know, medical applications. This could be used somewhere else, I don't yeah. know, to be widgets in a widget factory or something. Yeah, yeah, exa exactly. That's a, that's a question of history. For, from the very yeah. beginning, we, we apply that to, uh, to, to the medical field because yeah. a lot of research projects were around med medical applications. But finally, it could be applied to uh, any kind of simulation. It could be simulation uh, for automotive, uh, uh, automobile or stuff like that. could be for, you know, building... Uh, it it transferring or something. Who yeah, knows? Yeah. there is definitely a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of applications. And for example, one one of the recent applications we we discovered is a German startup that that was using Sofa, and we didn't know that. Uh -huh. We know, we knew that we, uh, we we knew that when we created a consortium one year ago, and uh, we discovered that there was a German startup using Sofa for industrial robotics. So something uh, not related at all with uh, any kind of application in, in medicine. So that's. The kind of example that we discover in the community. Yeah. Excellent. 
Um, anything else that uh, is coming up this year that you want to tell us about? So yeah, this year, I mean, that's really we are from the last year and the 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 the, the year that's gonna 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 come. So 2017, sorry, uh, that's uh, that's gonna be really the the start of this consortium that we are building around the software. Yep. And the idea is to really gather as many people interested in this uh, in this project uh, to get new achievements from researchers, from companies, uh, from uh, startups that are working around so far. So we hope to yeah to gather as many partners as uh, as possible around the platform. And it's uh, sofa-framework.org link will be in the show notes. Okay, thank you. Do we miss anything? No, no, perfect. Okay, thank okay. you very much. Thank Thanks for taking much. the time and good luck with the rest of the show. Hi, I'm at the Muse Score booth, and I'm talking to. You're talking to Nicolas Froment. And did I uh, mispronounce the name of the project? The name of the project is MuseCore. I think you were right. Yeah, okay, well done. Well done, me. So can you tell me what it is and what it does? So MuseCore is a free software to create sheet music, uh, music notation. Um, it's a WYSIWYG software, meaning you see exactly what you are doing, and when you will print the sheet, it will be exactly what you see on the screen. Uh, you can enter the notes uh, with uh, the keyboard, the mouse, or, or MIDI keyboard that is plugged to uh, the, the computer. Uh, people use it in many different ways. People compose with it, arrange scores. Uh, they use it for orchestra, but they would use it for concert band, for choir, uh, or only for single instrument and to learn the piano, for example, those type of things. And is it uh, open source? Is it? It's entirely open source. It's under GPLv2 and it's made on C++ and uh, Qt. And it's available on GitHub, uh, github.com slash and you can get the source and contribute there. So it's an application that you run on your system locally? Exactly. It's a desktop application for Linux, any kind of Linux, for FreeBSD as well, and for Mac and Windows. Okay, very good. And... Uh, I think that pretty much explains it, doesn't it? Exactly. So you can enter notes and you can play the notes as well and then you can print them. If there is two things that I, can, I could add is that on top of that, a lot of our users, so it's a very popular project. We have a thousand, uh, 5,000 uh, people downloading the, the, the software on Mac and, and Windows every day. So that's quite a lot of people. And these people, they like to share the score on, a, on our website. So we have a, a big database of scores made by the community. And these scores are in, are in an editable format, which is something pretty unique. Meaning if someone made it for piano and you want to play it with a trumpet, you can get the score, open it in MuseCore, and then edit it to, uh, to, to sound like a trumpet and be more suitable for you. Or you can make it easier for you, your students, for example, to play a certain song they really want to play. Are, is that Creative Commons stuff then? or what's most, the, uh, most of the thing is uh, compo composition and people can choose how they put a license. So we support public domain, uh, Creative Commons Zero, uh, several Creative Commons uh, flavor and also all right reserved. So uh, there is uh, all kind of, uh, of content on there. Regarding this particularly, uh, in, in particular, since you asked me about uh, public domain and, and Creative Commons, we, were, we are working on a project to digitize and I mean really digitize uh, uh, scores which are currently on only on, uh, in PDF, there is a big website called eimslp.org, which contains, uh, I think, 6 million pages of uh, scores of music, but only in PDF. And with a PDF, well, you can't listen to it, you can't uh, loop it, you can't learn it, you can't click on a note and see which note it is. So we want to digitize this with the help of our community. So we will launch a campaign in order to digitize uh, scores. We call this project Open Score, and we, there will be a, a talk here uh, about this. Okay, and um, so you're going to have a talk. Are you launching this? Is that site already available? No, it's not yet available. It will be available in uh, probably in April. And okay. I, I guess you will learn about it. I mean, uh, we will try to make a lot of noise about it, of course. So, <laughs> um, Anything else that uh, happened last year? Or coming up this year? Uh, one thing uh, interesting is that we were part of uh, Google Summer of Code uh, last year. It's a cool pro Well, I, I feel it's a cool project. I know it's by Google, but I, I, I like it a lot. Uh, we are a very small community of developers. Uh, we are four core developers and then a couple of uh, tens people uh, trying to uh, help us. And the Google Summer of Code project has bring uh, us a lot of uh, students uh, that helps uh, the development. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a cool stuff. What will come next is version 2.1 of MuseCore. 
and uh, we are working on a big uh, big release musical tree but that will be for next year somewhere hopefully or in two years but it will uh, have a lot more uh, nice features and one that is uh, that people expect a lot is anti-collision so, yeah. what's that? anti-collision is the fact that when you enter a particular marking on the score it doesn't collide with other elements okay very good thank you very much for taking the time did I get uh, to recover no I'm fine thank you it was, it was great to, to, be, uh, to be interviewed by you so thank you very much no problem Hi, I'm at the Matrix booth and I'm talking to... Matthew Hodgson. I'm the the tech co-founder of Matrix. So, tell us, what is Matrix? So, Matrix is an open standard for interoperable, decentralized communication. Um, So, the idea is to try to provide a neutral fabric for communication um, on the web, which links together all of the different silos out there today which can't talk to one another. So, that's making WhatsApp, talk to Skype, talk to Facebook, talk to IRC, talk to XMPP, talk to the PSTN, and everything in between. And Matrix does this, does it? It does most of it. So we've got bridges today through to IRC on Freenode, Mozilla Network, and a whole bunch of others. Um, Plus, you can run your own IRC bridges, too. We have Slack, Gitter, Telegram. uh, The community have contributed iMessage and Facebook Messenger. So the dream is uh, really coming true. So I could use any of these clients to communicate with the other ones within... There's got to be a star next to that yeah so there's a little catch at the moment a lot of the bridges are focused on group chats and rooms so the idea is that if you have a community which has ended up split between IRC and Slack and Getter which is a combination we're seeing way too often unfortunately at the moment then on the matrix side you can can create a matrix room and bridge that into the other three ones so the people on IRC will be able to see and talk to the people etc and link it all together now, for a one-to-one conversation, that is also supported, um, for instance, for IRC private messages going through to Matrix um, direct messages. And in theory, you should be able to go all the way through from a private message on, say, IRC to a private message on Telegram. And we're just getting to the point of wiring that in now. But it's still, honestly, in development. But patches are very welcome. Oh, cool. And so I come up with a new service like WhatsApp or something. Is, how, how would you go about integrating that? So uh, there are basically three components in the Matrix ecosystem. You have servers or home servers, which store all of your conversation history, and they're kind of like a um, mail server. And the cool thing about those, by the way, is that if you're running your own server, and I'm running my own one, the conversation is completely replicated over both. So no single entity owns or controls that conversation. It's kind of like Git rather than Subversion or CVS or whatever. And basically none of the other chat systems do that. And it's cool because it subversively, aggressively decentralizes everything. I cannot talk to you without decentralizing ownership of that conversation. So those are the servers. Then you have clients, which are pretty boring. um, um, Well, not boring, but they're they're sort of all the typical chat clients. They look like Slack. Um, They could be a command line thing like WeChat. Or they could be a desktop client like Quaternion or Natchat. And then finally, to actually answer your question, um, you have Bridges, uh, which are the application services that link the um, existing services like WhatsApp or Skype or whatever into the rest of Matrix. And these are basically clients but on steroids in that they can impersonate an entire network. So if you just created a new chat system like... I know wire, for instance, and you wanted to link that into Matrix, then the bridge is actually quite simple because it just needs to talk to wire, obviously, on one side, and then it's basically a big cluster of Matrix clients on the other side. And the Slack bridge, for instance, is 100 lines of code. And it really is 100 lines of JavaScript, for better or worse, um, built on top of our um, Matrix app service bridge library. And it's designed to make it really, really easy for people to take their favorite protocol and bridge it into um, the rest of Matrix. So I've been forced to use lots of applications that I don't necessarily want to use. And I want to use something that comes with a free and open source desktop. Can I then use Matrix to plug in the gaps? Absolutely. So that's really the classic use case on the bridging side of things. So Matrix itself is a protocol, and it's um, a software foundation that looks after the protocol. Then there are lots of different apps built on top of it. Uh, Riot is the name of the kind of flagship client at the moment, and that's available completely open source, completely Apache licensed, 
on desktop as an Electron app on the web, on iOS as a native iOS app, and on Android as a native Android app. Plus, it's available on F-Droid as well as the Google App Store, or Google Play Store, I should say. And um, that's kind of the classic way in which many people choose to use Matrix of going and firing up that app, bridging the rooms into Slack or IRC or whatever, and basically using it as a huge decentralized bouncer, but not just for IRC, but all of your conversations. So they're liberated, we say, into Matrix, and you can then use the Matrix APIs against your own home server or someone else's, or you can use the matrix.org one, and you basically get control of your conversations again in an open standard set of APIs. And I'll be able to log all those and search them, and yep. I have my history again. Like yeah, you have the history, you have full text search, um, and we use Postgres and SQLite as the databases by default on it. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can you basically regain control at last, and we bust open the walls of the wall gardens like WhatsApp and Skype. So, uh, what do I need to run this on? So the, the typical server that people use if they're running their own server is Synapse, which is written in Python and Twisted, and it runs anywhere, really, that can run Python and Twisted. Um, there are Debian um, deb files published in our repository. People make RPMs. Um, it's in part of the BSD ports, processor, um, ports system, and uh, there are really lots of different um, packages of Synapse. On the client side, it's dead easy because Riot as a web app is um, just static HTML and JavaScript. So you just get a tarball, expand it, and run it. And on iOS and Android, it's just in the stores. So the easiest way to get up and running is probably to use the default matrix.org server to try it out. And then if you like it, run your own server and have all of your clients connect to that instead. Would it run on a Raspberry Pi? It does run on a Raspberry Pi 2 and 3. Well, there you go. I think uh, I'm going to terminate this conversation and go try it now. No, I won't. I have more interviews to do. But what has been the cool stuff last year and what's the cool stuff next year? Well, almost all of last year was putting in end-to-end encryption, which I haven't mentioned at all yet, actually, but it's one of the most important things that we have here, that because the conversation history is replicated over all of those different servers, um, there's if it's not encrypted, that's quite a big attack surface. You're trusting a lot of random servers and sysadmins. Um, everybody who participates in the room basically will have a copy of it. So if you want any privacy, you have to have end-to-end encryption. And what we did was to implement a new system um, called OLM, which is an implementation of the axolotl, now called the double ratchet, um, that was invented by Open Whisper Systems for use of Signal. And we went and wrote an Apache-licensed version of it in C++11 with um, C wrappers on it. And we got it audited by NCC Group, and we actually paid, well, in part funded by the Open Tech Fund, um, for a public audit to prove that even though we'd written our own crypto, it didn't suck. And indeed, um, they uh, gave us a, a, a very good audit. Um, and that was back in September of last year. And we started the beta in November. And since then, we've been gradually rolling it out across, starting with um, the official Matrix client SDKs and Riot, which is built on top of them. And we're in late beta now. We just launched a new version this morning for FOSDEM, especially Riot 0.9.7, get it whilst it's hot, which includes um, the latest fixes to the... Uh, Ohm ratchet there. And we also created another ratchet called Megom, which is the group conversation one. So the way it works is that um, you have every you encrypt per device rather than per user, which is pretty cool. So if you want to blacklist a particular device um, from receiving your messages, you can. And you set up one-to-one channels to those devices via the classic axolotl Ohm ratchet. And then over those channels, you share the group encryption session data um, for the group conversations. So um, basically, if you have a 1,000 people in a room, which we support for the encrypted chat, then you only need to have um, one-to-one conversations between all of those 1,000 people to set up the group ratchet and then everybody um, respectively shares, which is a big novelty. What's a, what's a group ratchet? So a group ratchet is one where I basically ha- I have a ratchet which encrypts the series of... Mess- Sorry, what's a ratchet? Oh, oh okay. <laughs> That's the easier one. Okay, so a ratchet is um, an algorithm that generates a series of keys. And just like a mechanical ratchet, it can only go forwards. So it's kind of useful so that um, you can't revert. If you get uh, a key later on in the sequence, you can't use it to attack the previous conversation you didn't have access to. And a group ratchet is one of those, except it's one which is doing one-to-many rather than one-to-one. So basically everybody in the room has one of these ratchets, and they go and 
um, use it to generate the keys for the messages they send and they send the message once and everybody else in the room needs to have a copy of that ratchet in order to decrypt it. So the question is, how do you get them a copy of that ratchet? Well, that's how you use the normal signal-style one-to-one stuff. So basically, we've tried to solve the holy grail of group asynchronous encrypted one-to-one communications in a manner better than Signal or WhatsApp or Wire or any of the other systems out there. And hopefully it works. It's, there are still a couple of bugs in the beta right now. Sometimes you can't decrypt messages about 2% of the time, but we're working on it, and it's generally pretty good. Okay, excellent stuff. Gosh, that's a lot. Sorry. Uh, so, uh, no, not, not sorry. There is no way you can do this in your spare time. Yep, correct. It's a huge initiative because we're creating a whole ecosystem of interoperable communication. Our history is originally that we were doing proprietary commercial uh, messaging apps for telecoms companies, and we did that for about 10 years. And honestly, it got a bit depressing because why, as an end user, would you install another messaging app that's a silo from a your phone operator of all people so we basically had a choice to either quit or try to do something crazy like matrix and we went to our corporate overlords and said hey crazy idea why don't we go open source and non-profit and build matrix and they said well okay then and that was two years ago so we're basically being paid um, as an existing team of about 16 people to go completely off message, create Matrix, try to terraform a whole new industry. And if it exists and it works, it's kind of like the web. You know, the actual standard is open and completely uh, you know, flexible for anybody. And it still means that big companies can go and provide hosted services and they can provide carrier-grade deployments or whatever and it kind of works both for the end user and for the big companies and hopefully everybody wins. Who is the big corporate overlord then? So the corporate overlord is a company called Amdocs who do billing solutions for telcos primarily. Um, They're 35 years old as of last week and this is the first time they've done open source but so far it's um, been a a cautiously positive success. Oh, fair fucks to them really. Oh, well done. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically where Matrix is at in the coming year. Um, we're getting to the point where we're starting to see spam on the network. So there's Ooh, going to be... Then you know you're becoming popular. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Uh, we welcomed our first spammer a couple of weeks ago in, in a very... Um, we didn't welcome them particularly <laughs> with open arms. Um, but it really becomes... Um, shows how relevant it is that we need to solve the decentralized reputation problem for spam. And that is basically the same as solving spam for SMTP. But the good news is that we're making up our own protocols, so we can hopefully engineer it in a much better way than email ever could. But that's going to be a huge focus in the coming year. That and threading, because we don't yet have threaded conversations, and that's really important for bridging to email and to message boards and to forums. You can bridge to email as well. Uh, we can, but it sucks because without threading, you just get this big, long... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we really have to get threading in there. Uh, whatever things are on the horizon. There's, I mean, there's so much stuff going on at the moment. A whole new server implementation. So we're moving away from Python to Golang. So we're just putting the first touches to the first build of Dendrite, which is the name of the Golang server. And this is a highly scalable, horizontally sort of scalable server that uses uh, append-only log-based architecture. So you have lots of different components um, for different rooms and different uh, presents and all the other different sync, uh, receiving messages, federating. They're all split off into their own separate service. And they're all glued together by a big decentralized message bus internally. So they can cluster as much as you like which is very different to Synapse, which is a single monolithic blob of Python, basically. So that's going to be fun. Wow, you're going to be busy. Oh, yeah. no, This year is going to be kind of make or break for us. If we can fix the spam problem and the scalability stuff, then there's no reason why it can't just explode and replace the phone network, which is basically what we were aiming for. Okay, awesome. Listen, thank you very much for taking the time, and I really hope you wish you good luck with uh, FOSDEM and uh, the coming year. Indeed, thank you very much. It's been great to chat. No problem. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. 
If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.